Welcome to Restored for Life with Pastor Ben Harris, the senior pastor at Restored Community Church, where God's perfect word restores imperfect people. Here's today's message from Pastor Ben. You see, as this world becomes increasingly crazy and difficult to live in, I think that all of us are going to be forced to answer that question, why do I follow Jesus? Will you follow because of who he is rather than what he can do? If the return of Jesus is later rather than sooner, I think we're all going to be forced to answer that question. Decide to follow Jesus now, not because of what he's done for you or, or, or what he can do, you believe he can do for you, but follow him because he is worthy. He is the only one worthy of our praise. He's the only one worthy of our worship. He's the only one worthy of our trust. Jesus didn't come down from heaven in order to feed our stomachs, although gladly and thankfully he does that. He provides for us. But his primary mission is to save the world by bringing life to the souls of dead men and women. You you cut, cut right down to the core of it. That's the reason Jesus came. He simply tells the lost, come and follow me. No promises of an easy life, no assurance of worldly gain, Only his presence through every storm and eternal life with him that begins both now when you receive Christ and continues throughout all eternity. Next, we read uh, the first of seven I am declarations that are here in this passage. Here's uh, the first one. It's an unmistakable declaration of Jesus, and he is Jehovah God. When Jesus says, I am, it means I am Jehovah God, the self-existent one. Just as God revealed his name to Moses as I am, Jesus asserts his rightful title here as the pre-existent son of God, I am. Look down at your Bibles, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that Of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Four responses to Jesus' message. Response number one, a curious response. And here's response number two, a complaining response. Verse 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. He used the terminology and claimed to be God. And the Jews went, whoa, that's blasphemy what you just said. Verse 42, and they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? You see, he's in his, he's in his neighborhood. They're going, oh, hold on, Jesus. <laughs> you came down from heaven. Listen, we've known you since you were born. We've known your mom and dad 
So how is it that you claim to come down from heaven? Jesus uses this phrase, coming down from heaven, or come down from heaven, as a phrase uh, five times in John. He uses this form, coming down from heaven. It's a clear claim of deity, and they took it that way by their response. Verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. A murmur is grumbling to each other. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned... You see, it's not simply uh, good enough to just hear, but one has to learn what they're hearing and take it in. Jeremiah the prophet talked about the word of God and the word spoken by God as a spiritual food that was to be ingested. This is what Jesus is talking about. He said, the prophets talked about this. You should know this. And yet they took it the wrong way because they didn't want to receive what he was about to give and offer Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. While it is God who gives people to his Son, these people must then come to Jesus for salvation. The fact that God predestines us for salvation doesn't negate our need to respond. From our fragile and feeble minds, this is difficult to understand and reconcile. But in God's mind, it makes perfect sense. One of Charles Spurgeon's church members asked him how he reconciled these two opposites, and he responded with, oh, I never try to reconcile two friends. They're two friends walking hand in hand as Spurgeon saw them. They both work perfectly together. Our feeble minds have a rough time understanding that. Wait a minute, God called me. And yet, I choose? Which is it? Well, it's, it's not either one, it's both. God clearly says in his word that he has called us, but he's also said in his word that we must choose. And all through the Bible, you have both. From our fragile and feeble minds, this is difficult. Only in heaven, I think, will we see the perfect congruency of this truth come together and go, oh, wow, I didn't understand that. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, speaking of himself, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am, there, is, there it is again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. They want the manna to come down from heaven like it did for Moses. Jesus is going, you, you want the manna from, wait a minute, I'm the bread of life. You want this manna that falls down so you can eat it? Uh, those people that did that are dead. This, the bread of life Jesus is talking about, is the bread which comes down from heaven. That one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Speaking of how he would die, he would lay down his life on the cross. 
He would say, no man takes my life. No one, no one captured me and drug me to the cross. No, I, I laid my life down. No one takes it from me. He came to fulfill a purpose. The manna which God provided to Moses and the people wandering in the de- desert came at no cost to the Father in heaven. But the bread of life that God sent into the world that would bring about eternal life came at the gravest of all costs. It cost the Father his one and only Son, Jesus. Now God had skin in the game, his own Son's fleshly body that would be nailed to a cross. Jesus refers to his flesh seven times in this dialogue alone. Four responses to Jesus' message. Response number one, a curious response. Response number two, a complaining response. And here's response number three, a contentious response. As I said earlier, Jesus is pressing the listener here. You're going to have to choose to believe or reject me. He wasn't going to continue with this circus of people that just wanted to see him perform miracles. He was going to push them to the next step of belief. Verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Again, they took the bread literal, and now they're taking the flesh in a literal. Jesus has spoken this so many different ways, and they should have known from the prophets that what he was speaking of. But when you don't want to accept the message, you reject the messenger. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, he's going to press the button again. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. uh, Jeremiah explained all of this. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Once again, the crowd completely misunderstood Jesus' words by taking this analogy literal. All Jesus was saying was that just as we are talking about nourishment and having the need to nourish our bodies by eating and drinking at mealtime, in a spiritual sense, we must drink and eat all that Jesus brings to the table for the nourishment of our souls. Hopefully, that's why you're here this morning. You've come to be nourished, to have your soul nourished by opening up the Word of God and listening to it, by responding to it as you lift up your voice to worship the Lord this morning. Hopefully, you don't just eat one meal a week. 
If you did that physically, you would, you would die in six months. You'd be so emaciated or dead, you need to eat more often. You need to eat almost daily to be healthy. So don't just come here only to feast on the Word of God today, but go home and open your Bibles and read them. Come to understand them. Dig in and then do what it says. Live how it challenges us to live. Some religions believe that Jesus is talking about communion or the Eucharist here, but I don't agree with that at all. Why would Jesus discuss something that he hadn't fully explained until the Last Supper when he instituted the communion? And why would Jesus discuss communion with a bunch of angry unbelievers anyway? The answer is he wouldn't. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about his flesh and blood would bring salvation Additionally, down in verse 63, Jesus explains that he is speaking metaphorically here. And when communion is spoken of in the Gospels, as in Corinthians, the word is not flesh, but rather body. Interesting to note. Jesus' teaching is often a beautiful metaphorical explanation of truth, and to make it literal is to commit the same mistake that these unbelievers were making. Four responses to Jesus' message. Response number one, curious response. Response number two, a complaining response. Response number three, a contentious response. And lastly, response number four, a condemning response. Jesus' words here are not difficult to understand by these people, but they are difficult to accept. And once they understood them, they had to make a decision. And while some believed, many and most, I would say, rejected the teaching entirely. Verse 60, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Jesus was referring to after he came out of the grave, 40 days later when he went ascended back to heaven, Jesus was already asking them, what would, what would you think if I was t- caught up into heaven and you witnessed it? Would you believe then? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. He's telling them, stop thinking about the... the, We're not talking about the flesh here. We're talking about the Spirit here. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. No one can understand the truths of God. No one can understand how salvation happens through Jesus unless God draws a man to go deeper and follow him. Verse 66, From that time, many of his disciples... Now at this point... There are perhaps thousands of people 
that are following him, they want to see what he's going to do next. That's the reason most of them are there. Then we read about the 120 that go with him most places. We'll see them later on in the upper room. There's about 120 of them in the upper room. And then you have the 12 when you're talking about disciples. Here we're we're referring to the largest group. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They had made a decision that day. The danger of hearing God's calling and rejecting it is that people tend to run back into their hopelessness and sinfulness with greater determination, and it becomes all the more difficult to get over the hurdles that they've placed in the way. They create and foster hearts that become calloused and hardened towards God's grace and His truth. Do you know someone like that? I do. It's sad to watch that They have heard the truth, they've listened to it, they've considered it, and now reject it and won't hear about it anymore. Verse 67, then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, I love Simon, (laughs) he always wants to be the first to respond. Right or wrong, you got to love Simon. Here, he gets it. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Messiah. That's what Christ means, the Son of the living God. Now, we can laugh at Peter for all his mistakes he made along his way in the journey that he took to salvation and transformation, but he was among those who understood Jesus' words that day, and he believed them, and he confessed Jesus as Lord. The only mistake he made in his declaration is that he confesses Christ for the whole group. We believe. Well, hold on, Peter. Not all of us. That was the truth that day. Clearly, there was at least one among them who did not believe, and Judas Iscariot never would. This shows you the uncanny ability that Judas had to convince the others that he was with them. Jesus is a polarizing figure. He always has been. Those who reject him reject his word and want nothing to do with him. And those who receive Christ receive his word. And there is no middle ground. How does one know for a fact that they are saved? Allow me to answer this just briefly. I'm just going to give you a a couple of things this morning. There's a long list I could give you, but for sake of time, I'll just give you two. here's, Here's one way you know you're saved. A believer will sin less. I didn't say sinless. I said, a believer will sin less. When the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts, he begins the work of sanctification. When we we turn from our sin, that's called repenting. When we turn from our sin and we give our life to Christ and we we confess with our mouth and our heart that Jesus is our Lord now and we're going to follow him, then we become followers of Christ, believers. 
And the Holy Spirit comes in to our life and he takes up residency. He begins to change our heart regarding our view of sin. Sin becomes a lot more tasteless after you become a Christian. You don't want to go do the things that you used to do. You don't want to even be with the people that, that offend God greatly with their mouth and their actions. I found that to be true. After I gave my life to Christ, I suddenly didn't want to go do those things anymore with those people. And they would call me and say, Harris, where, where are you? Where'd you go? You were hanging out when we were having a blast, man, come on. This weekend we're going to do thus and such. And I'd say, yeah, not me anymore, man. I, I, I gave my life to, to Jesus. Oh, oh my, what? You? <laughs> Does he know you? <laughs> Wait till the church finds out what you've done. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that guy anymore. You do go do what you're going to do. I'm going to go do what I'm going to do. It was just different. We're not sinless, but we sin less, and we have a desire to, to sin a lot less. I love how Adrian Rogers, one of my favorite pastors in the whole world, who passed, uh, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, he put it this way. He said, before I got saved, I was running to sin. <laughs> that was me. Now I am running from it, and if I fail and fall, I turn right around and start running away again. I would add, and running and run to the Lord. Hey, do we blow it? You bet. Your pastor included. What do I have to do? What do we have to do? We have to get back up, brush ourselves off, turn around, reorientate, recalculating as the GPS. It's like she's yelling at you. Recalculate. She's judging me. A little voice in the box. Go this way. That's what the Holy Spirit does. When I fall, I know it. And I confess my sin. And God says, okay, now let's keep going this way. Keep going this way. Another proof of genuine salvation is that a believer will desire to do what you are doing at this very moment. A true believer will want to be with the forever family. They'll want to get together and come together to worship the Lord. They'll want to come and sing praises to God. They'll want to come and, and, and kind of get encouraged, and, and then they'll want to use their gifts suddenly. How can I serve someone? I have the gift of service. I have the gift of encouragement. Who can I encourage? They'll want to start living the life a part of the forever family. Vacations are good, and, and I love them. But even on vacation, I want to be with you guys. And so we watch the services, and we sing in our hotel room or wherever we are because we want to be with you guys. You're our forever family. And I tell people, you, you might as well start liking me now. We're going to be together forever. <laughs> you can't get away from me. You'll start to want to be with the people fellowshipping with God's people, lifting up our voices like we did earlier to praise him. Conversely, Judas never became a believer and 
He never received Jesus' message of redemption. He rejected Jesus' words, and he's paying for that rejection even now. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So I ask you this question again. What will you do with Jesus? Have you believed in him? Have you received that free gift that he purchased on the cross for you? He purchased eternal life for you in a place called heaven. But you have to receive it. A gift isn't yours until you receive it. If you gave me a gift and set it on the step here, and I just turned around and walked away, that's not my gift. I didn't take it. I didn't receive it. God's offered a gift to everyone in here. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's, that's the gift. I say this often, each one of us, if you have a heartbeat, you have a soul, and if you have a soul, then you have an eternal soul, and you will spend eternity in one place or another. You want to be with him in the place that he's prepared for you. Let's pray. Restored for Life is a radio ministry brought to you by Restored Community Church. Visit RestoredCommunityChurch.org to learn more about Pastor Ben Harris and for service times. Join Pastor Ben next time as we set out on a journey to discover the authentic life as Christ followers through obedience to His Word.